from Kurtco Media. This is Robert Ross. The following episode was recorded in the Kurtco Malibu studios just prior to the enactment of the Safer at Home order in Los Angeles in March of 2020. We've been recording remotely since the order took effect. So listeners, please stay safe, listen to the health officials during these times, and be well. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. Welcome back to another episode, and I hope an entertaining conversation that's a little bit enlightening, especially for me, an older car guy who will learn about younger car people. I'm here with Ryan Zamalin. Ryan, welcome to Cars That Matter. Thank you. Ryan is the reviews editor with Edmunds.com. Everyone knows Edmunds. He's also the author of a recently published book, which I found fascinating, Slow Car Fast, The Millennial Mantra Changing Car Culture for Good, published by Carrera Books. That's right. In 2019, so it's a recent launch and one that I've had the pleasure of of reading and hoping to talk about the book in our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again so much for having me. No, this is is always great. You know, everybody's got an opinion about cars, but few people have the wherewithal to actually be able to write about them. So for me, talking with authors and people who have ideas they can actually put down on paper, to me, that's the most interesting kind of car enthusiast of all. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's really nice having you here. I loved your book. I'll just be straight. It was a really interesting read for me, not only because I think we know a number of the same people, but because you touched on some things that are near and dear. You also touched on things that I don't know anything about at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How long did the book take to write? From sitting down and deciding, okay, I'm actually going to do this and dedicate time to it, to getting it out was a little under two years. And it was about six months of doing nothing but reading and finding material and gathering as much information as I could, tracking down the right people, identifying who the right people were to talk to and gathering, gathering, gathering until I had so much information, I felt like it was popping out of me. And then that was when I knew it was time to sit down and start to write. So once the writing started, it was fairly easy and came fairly quickly. And then after that, it was a matter of finding an editor who I thought could do a good job and fine-tuning and teaching myself how to print and distribute. <laughs> wow, well, that's a, that's a heck of an undertaking. You start with a premise that I think all of us who have been car enthusiasts for a long time, and especially those of us who grew up with cars that were not the kind of fire-breathing dragons they are today, have always held as a mantra, you know, you can have more fun driving a slow car fast than a fast car slow. Right. So how did that become sort of the linchpin of the book? I think for people of my age and younger, as you say, that saying has been around for a very, very long time. But for our generation in particular, attainability has always been an issue. We've kind of come into an age post-recession that is a little bit difficult to... It makes it tough to get some of those great cars that you yourself test on a regular basis at Edmunds. Yeah, exactly. But if you're still a car guy, that doesn't go away. So you make do with whatever you can get your hands on. And for a lot of people, that means 80s and 90s Japanese Started cars. with Civic CIs and, and exactly. the, all the stuff that really provides an awful lot of pleasure per pound, per e- dollar. Exactly. And then figuring out, okay, now what can I do with it? So if you find a clean stock one, okay, now what can I do? How do I make it better? How do I improve it? Where do I get the most bang for my buck is really a huge part of the equation. And going through that process, you learn more about cars. You learn more about 
the scene. You have to get involved with your local community because you're going to share parts or share advice or whatever. And whether you realize it or not, are just building like this car enthusiasm fever inside of you. Yeah, it's kind of no different than the old hot rodders did back after World War II. Really no different at all. I mean, they were working with cars they bought for $50 and they spent more time torching and wrenching the sheet metal and the engines than um, certainly than they had money to spend. And it was really all a matter of sort of fomenting this shared enthusiasm and shared support, something you see an awful lot today more than ever before because, of course, you have the power of the internet to facilitate information sharing. That was one of the fun parts of writing the book, too, is I found a lot of parallels between younger enthusiasts now or modern-day enthusiasts and the old-school guys were like, they they came up the same way, out of necessity. You teach yourself to do things because you can't afford to pay somebody to do it for you. And then you're kind of looked at as outlaws. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. And looked down upon and saying, why are you desecrating whether, that 32 a, Ford? Or why are a, you desecrating that Corvette or right. or whether Whether Supra it's a rat rod or an outlaw Porsche or whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing. And yeah. then that leads to typically illegal street racing. <laughs> Right. In many cases. And then once that gets out of control, then you open up drag strips in the 60s or you open up drifting arenas in the early 2000s and you begin to legitimize it and turn it into a sport. You know, my dad told me stories about drag racing down Olympic Boulevard in 1932. So it's been around ever since the first wheel turned, I think, the impetus to do something a little against the law and an awful lot of fun. Yeah. You know, you talk about these guys that hadn't got two nickels to rub together then or now, and that contrasts considerably with the opening chapter of your book, chapter one, Does Fast Matter? And I thought that was a great question. And of course, there you you talk about an entitled millennial who's driving a McLaren Senna. And clearly, he didn't buy the car himself. That was uh, family money. I did note that in the book, you mentioned his dad drives a Ferrari 275 GTB. Now, that is, so that's a man of wealth and taste, as Mick Jagger might have called him. Yeah. That, to me, displays a sense of appreciation for great machines. Not that a McLaren Senna is not, but certainly this guy's got a breadth and scope of a collecting sensibility that at least incorporates more than just the brand new. They were certainly not without taste. And I hope that the chapter doesn't come off as no, making no, no. them seem no, doesn't, grotesque doesn't or anything all. like that. Not, not in the least grotesque. I think the only thing that is grotesque is the, the question raised <laughs> is the question raised by the title of your chapter. Yeah. Does fast matter? And of course, I think we could have a nice long conversation about why it probably doesn't. Yeah. At least not in the real world. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Getting to sit in a car like that and experience it, what it's capable of for two-tenths of a second, it's very, very clear that (laughs) it's just a ridiculous thing to be able to have on a public road. That's right. It's more like a spaceship than a car in, in many, many ways. But I'm glad they exist. I'm glad people get to have them and enjoy them, and we keep pushing the boundaries. Absolutely. You know, in your book, you mentioned it. I've always kind of referred back to some of the originals. I guess some would blame it all on the Porsche 959 or the Ferrari F40. I remember seeing the F40 in the showroom when it came out, and I think it was all of about $175,000 or something like that at the time. And I thought, this car is absolutely from outer space. And they were the first supercars. And I guess that's sort of scratched the itch initially, and and then everybody came along for the ride, huh? Yeah, and I think those cars are so fun to look back on because, you're right, they were absolute groundbreakers, and whether they realized it or not, they were starting a whole new breed of road car capability. And I think the fun part about those two is they're still so highly revered. They haven't been 
They haven't like been the, like shut the McLaren aside. F1. I mean, they become exactly. uh, they become real icons of their respective time periods yeah. and, and from those marks. Yeah, and I think to me that was evidence that as as we keep going, we're not going to shove history aside. We're not going to forget about all the really pioneering, groundbreaking feats of engineering that have come before. It's not about erasing history or anything like that. It's just about finding how far we can take it now. And then I think the interesting thing about these super fast supercars and now hypercars on another class is the people who aren't necessarily going to be able to attain them, but can look at them and be inspired by them and say, okay, well, how can I achieve a similar level of like enjoyment out of driving? And that for a lot of people is slower cars and learning to find the limits within what they can afford. And whether they're necessarily fast or have a lot of horsepower or not, finding a way to enjoy what that car has to offer, whether it's responsiveness or balance or handling and creating like a whole breadth of what good performance actually means beyond zero to 60 times or right. the number of horsepower that you have. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute because you're absolutely right. You know, cars like a Mazda Miata come to mind as a, sort of the quintessential fun cars for little money because they really address so many fundamental principles of driving acceleration, you know, yeah. lightweight, great handling, dynamics, feel of the road, wind in your hair, all yeah. the kind of good I, stuff that I that drove happens. one here. Did you really? Well, then you, then you too are a man of wealth and taste <laughs> well, because we I have, think, the, I think yeah. the Mazda's a great car. We have it in the Edmunds long-term fleet, uh-huh. and so we're putting miles on it and testing how it performs over the length of its lifetime. And, well, uh, I, I'm not a betting man, but I would bet that that car performs identically after 150,000 miles <laughs> right. as it does right off the showroom floor yeah. because these things just don't break. And that's more than you can say for uh, aforementioned McLaren or uh, yeah. Ferrari or Porsche. You talk about another car in the chapter that sort of leveled the playing field in a lot of ways. It was a very interesting car and one that, kind of like Rodney Dangerfield, doesn't get much respect. The Nissan GTR, because boy, does it ever perform from mm-hmm. the beginning. But it also carries the stigma of low price relative to its supercar competitors. Where do you see that kind of lying in the scheme of things? Kind of a middle ground. The GTR, specifically the R35 model that came out, I think in 2008, maybe 2009. First one, yeah. Was such a game changer, not because it was ludicrously fast, which it was, but because it offered that kind of performance at a relatively low price. Right, I think 65000 I think its bucks, starting price was something like that. Something yeah. Like that yeah. And it's, it's, I think the starting price is over 100 now, but at the, yeah, when it first yeah. came out, it was, it was really, wow, that's, that's a was, lot of car for the money. But the thing that caused a backlash was not that it was super fast, but that it almost digitized or computerized the experience. It made it too easy. It created that conversation. Okay, what do we really value? Do we really value top speed and zero to 60 in three seconds? Or do we really value getting a tactile response and feedback from our cars? And for a lot of people, including many younger people, the answer was the latter. We want something that makes me feel something. Absolutely. So the GTR is not necessarily for me, even though I grew up playing video games and watching Fast and Furious and all that. I'm looking for something that I can engage with and has a personality and tells a story. And I was talking to one analyst for the book and I asked him, okay, so the trend to me is that younger people getting into cars are looking for something that's going to give them something back in response. Is that surprising to you is what I asked this automotive analyst. And he said, no. He said, the younger people look at everything else that they're into. They're into fixie bicycles, (laughs) these things that are relics 
but they make people feel better because they're easy to work on. You can have fun with them. They're, Look at the resurgence simple. of the LP. I mean, it's a it's a fool's errand to actually imagine that an LP would be easier and more trouble-free than compact disc exactly. or, or certainly streaming. But there's an interest in these things. They're authentic. Yeah. And by the way, they sound better. <laughs> <laughs> authentic is, is the perfect word. Yeah. So yeah, things like vinyl, things like going to farmer's markets and stuff, things that were painted at the time as hipster or whatever you want to call it. But we're really like, a search for a generation that's grown up with everything digital to find something that they can hold on to and touch and feel. You're absolutely right. Your book has so much in it. I move on to chapter two, which is one that I found particularly piquant insofar as it made me think about my youth. It's called The Absurdity of Speed. And I've always thought that speed, at least relative to road cars, is a bit of an absurd concept. Mm -hmm. And I loved that chapter. You talk about the nonsense of zero to 60 and how irrelevant it really is in the scheme of things. But this is not a new fixation. I remember being in a high school homeroom in 1970 and bringing in the latest issue of A Road and Track. They compare the Lamborghini Miro and the Ferrari Daytona and the Maserati Ghibli. They were all about $20,000 at the time. And pouring over the zero to 60 times, and my buddies and I talk about that. Well, yeah, but this one does it in 0.2 seconds faster, and it goes two miles an hour faster than the, you know, it's like, who... Cares. But the nonsense of zero to 60, I love how you were talking about how really irrelevant horsepower is. I well, mean, uh, by the way, it's not horsepower, it's torque. Yeah. Torque's what matters. Yeah, and it, I think it's become irrelevant. I think I understand why it was such a touchstone for so many people for so long. And if cars are all hovering around six or six and a half seconds to do zero to 60, then yeah, there's some room to argue about which one is better or this one is definitively faster because it's a half second faster. But if everything is 2.8 to 3.2, yeah. what is <laughs> what is the difference then at that point? It's absolutely true. I think the new Porsche just announced their new Carrera Turbo S right. with, I think, a 2.6 second right. zero to 60 time. I, mean, I, just, is... I just went on the launch event for the new BMW X5M a 5,000-pound SUV that will do it in 2.7 seconds. That's amazing. So, like, what are we even doing here at I know, this point? I know, I know, and, and how little does it matter? And, of course, somebody had to up the ante on straight line 0 to 60. You talk about the Nürburgring and how the Nordschleife has become sort of the touchstone for performance. Yeah, I think the, the key there is that lap times, and especially that of the Nürburgring, just because it's so legendary and so big and so long, you can really get a larger discrepancies between lap times. But you get a sense of how the car performs as an overall entity. And you get a sense of, if that thing is not going to get a good time if it can't brake, or the chassis doesn't stay flat, or the driver doesn't get good feedback or response. Uh, That's right. You could have all the horsepower in the world, but it's just not going to do that well. And so you can have cars that do better in the zero to 60 and then get trounced when they get out to a track like that. It's become kind of a parody of itself at this point. Arguing over lap times is not necessarily the most constructive thing to do either. Right. But it was definitely an evolution of the car enthusiasts to kind of graduate from, from arguing about zero to, to 60. straight line to curves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it really was. And I think it also allowed us to appreciate different kinds of cars a lot more. If things are down on horsepower, well, but look at how it did in this. And you can tell because it's coming out of the corner so much faster because it's not carrying as much weight. That's right. Or you can put the power down middle of the corner instead of waiting until you're all the way out. It just allowed you to open your eyes and look at what different kind of cars would do in their lap times and say, hey, that's pretty impressive, even though it's not the most expensive or it's not the most powerful. 
Well, you know, some of the arguments are not tangible or rational at all, and you touch on those in your book, and that's the stuff that actually sort of speaks to me. I think I like to think of myself and probably a lot of car enthusiasts like to think of themselves as being somewhat iconoclasts and not following the trends. But the fact of the matter is trends exist for a reason because typically things that are trendy are probably pretty good, pretty desirable. One of the trends that you sort of touch on is really more of maybe a psychological phenomenon, the, the notion that there's a kind of a hierarchy of desire desirability that is not based on exclusivity or price or power or performance. Mm -hmm. It's based on some of these intangibles. The car that you mentioned that resonated with me was the 911R, as opposed to something like a Turbo Carrera, a Turbo S, for instance, that clearly outperforms the car, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily the better car. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think look at what Porsche's done since that came out. I think the GT2 RS is like miles faster than a 911R, but I think the 911R is always going to be more desirable because it was rawness to it that is kind of a return to what Porsche did regularly in the past and doesn't really do all that much anymore. So yeah, like you said, even though it's not the fastest in, in many situations compared to something that you could buy for that money, frankly, which is which yeah. is another yeah. it's another story. But but I think clearly you have a, a love of Porsches and you talk about a lot of Porsche personalities within the Porsche community. Mm-hmm. And maybe you want to talk about some of the more memorable cars and people that you've dealt with in that particular Mark arena. The one that stands out is a guy named Joey Seeley. And he runs a shop called Emotion Engineering down in Orange County. And he is known as a suspension genius. And so... To me, that was a throwback to when in the 60s and 70s, these guys would become famous for hot rodding different engines and pumping your horsepower up all the way. And you were going to be able to go to him and get his secret sauce and then Mm -hmm. go out and win on the drag strip. And Joey does some engine stuff too, but his main thing is really high quality suspension parts and knowing how to do a setup to make little minor tweaks that really make a big difference on the car. And he has no shortage of business now. So it's, it's a really, really high demand to have something that has been breathed on by emotion engineering and then all of a sudden makes your car a second or two seconds or three seconds faster on the track. And one of the cars that he built as his own personal project is called Project Nasty. And again, he had done some engine stuff to it too, but I got to ride in it with him. And the way that that car felt on the road was such a like visceral experience and just in making like little movements darting around you could tell that this is somebody who really knows what he's doing and knows how to get the most out of a car and really make it come alive and talk to you porsches have always afforded that opportunity until we saw some of the fire breathers like the gt2 rs and cars in that league porsche always really had to work harder to get the power down and to deliver and of course what it always delivers is handling yeah and you know feedback that a few other cars can match so i mean when i was a kid the big upgrades that you looked at for porsches were things from roof like the yellow bird which just like blew the doors off of production cars back then or the more absurd ones like gambala or something like that where you would just put these enormous turbochargers on things and get crazy power out of stuff and that was that was really really exciting stuff at the time and to me what joey was doing was more of the same thing but on a suspension side Mm -hmm. making sure that the setup of the car is paid as much attention as power is and that i think is going to become more of a theme in the future i can't argue with you. I can't agree more because I do believe that the exhilaration of great handling dynamics 
fantastic braking, feedback through the wheel is really where the pleasure in driving comes, especially when we drive in a real world that you know, is limited to, I mean, let's be honest, 85 miles an hour or whatnot yeah. in a straight line. Everything else happens at slower speeds yeah. that actually rewards you. And it's a funny thing because it's not necessarily something you can measure or put a number on. That's right. It, it's not something where you can say like, you can't oh. Put, you can't put it on a dyno. Right. Yeah, and you can't say, oh, uh, my suspension has 700 horsepower or whatever. I guess you could say it pulls this many Gs, but that's like a little, it's just more abstract. It's just more of like a a thing you have to feel and sometimes can't even describe. But people are seeing the value in that, and that's definitely a shift and I think an exciting one. I I did a silly thing recently. I had an opportunity to pick up a little Fiat 500, which I've always regarded as one of the best industrial designs of recent era. I mean, Frank Stephenson did a great job with the original show car, and I think as as a design statement. It's almost flawless. We had had one for a while. It was a lot of fun. It's an amazing thing. And what I did was throw a stupid amount of money into uh, suspension wheels, big six-pot Willwood brakes, (laughs) and chassis stiffening and things through an outfit called 500 Madness down in Southern California. They're in uh, Signal Hill, I think. In Signal Hill. And the car is absolutely remarkable. It's as slow as a stone, but that doesn't matter. (laughs) I swear this is not hyperbole. It's my favorite car at present. Wow. I enjoy driving it more than anything else because it just has that feedback that, well, call it authenticity, what we talked about before. No, that's so great. And the fact that you can say that after two minutes after you said you have a GT3 Touring is pretty remarkable. No, it's it's true. There's a real, you know, you want them all. Sure. You want them all. But when push comes to shove, I think uh, you've got to find a parking space. It's hard to beat that Fiat or that Miata or that, you know, little Z3 BMW Roadster or some of the cars that we might otherwise not think too deeply about. We've got a lot to think about. We also have to take a break. Let's come back in a moment with my guest, Ryan Zumullen, and we'll have some more fun. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtcocom slash a moment of your time. Well, we're back with Cars That Matter and my guest today, Ryan Zamalan, talking about his book, Slow Car Fast, and his experiences, his opinions, and his mantra that you can have more fun driving a slow car fast than a fast car slow. Ryan, obviously you started out with cars long before you became a professional journalist or a writer. Give us some insight. Where did it all start? What was the first car in the driveway or what was the first car you laid hands on? Yeah, my dad and his family were really into IndyCar. And so we were always watching the race on weekends and getting big groups together to watch the 500. Some of my earliest memories are toddling around and watching Alan Sir Jr. or Mario and Michael Andretti battle it out. And that just stuck with me for a long time. And so when it finally did come time to be of driving age, we had 5.0 Mustangs. Fox bodies? Yeah. Oh, and they yeah. Were a That's blast. A, those are a blast. I and, love those cars. Um, they weren't upgraded too much and they were the convertibles so they were heavier and slower but they had the good engine and they had all the fun that you needed to get into at 16 or 17 years old you know i'm really grateful that i had a chance to have powerful cars 
young because I learned real quick how to get into trouble, and mm-hmm. then I didn't need to do it anymore. It's kind of like getting drunk for the first time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you're really smart, it's the first and last time. Right. I'm not that smart. I didn't feel the need to show off and do crazy stuff, and I'm really grateful for that because I think if I would have gotten into it later, I would have tried to go overboard and, and be a hotshot and stuff. But I grew up driving to school in high horsepower cars compared to what all my friends were driving. And so just taking off and driving on a, on a weekend morning and having fun in the curves in a car that's not necessarily that great in the curves, <laughs> but learning how yeah, to... Yeah, but you can power out of them with sure. a, lot of, a lot of that right foot. Yeah, it's but, an awful lot of fun. Yeah, but learning how to find my sweet spot of driving came from those days. So that was really what shaped me and solidified, okay, this is something that I want to be a part of my life for a long time. And it was a lot of fun. I had two until college, and then it came time to get a sensible car. I was going to do a journalism career and needed to be at City Hall press conferences on time and needed to be at my interviews on time. So that was the end of Muscle Car Ryan for a while. I mean, maybe we'll get back to it at some point. <laughs> but thankfully, I was able to make a career out of automotive journalism. And I've covered the Long Beach Grand Prix for many years and have done motorsports writing and, and blogging for a long time too. So there's all kinds of ways to find careers in this industry. One of the things you talked about in, in your book was something called the millennial myth, the notion of young Americans rejecting the automobile. Do you want to explain that, expand on that a little? Because for me, that was one of the most interesting set of insights in, in the book. Yeah, it was really, really important to me. I wanted that conversation to be upfront in the book because for a lot of years, it seemed we were just getting bombarded with these headlines like, why aren't millennials into cars? Why do they hate cars? Why aren't they buying them? And in retrospect, the answers were pretty clear. They were right in our face like we didn't have any money. But <laughs> but it was just, it was such a strange thing for me I, it, to just beat up on a generation like that. But when you really dove into it, young people were really into cars. They just, it, just not on the same playing field that we were used to people being into cars. So among young people, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in 60s and 70s muscle cars or attendance at Pebble Beach and things like that. But there were things brewing under the surface, which have since come up above the surface and have gotten really mainstream, different kinds of events, different kinds of motorsports, stuff like that. But at the time, it wasn't the traditional way. And so it looked on the surface like there was no interest, but I think nothing could be further from the truth. And I get into that in the book. But the thing that kind of sent me over the edge was a car and driver issue a couple of years ago where Malcolm Gladwell, the author of The Tipping Point and the New Yorker writer for a long time, was the guest editor. And he wrote two essays and they were both talking about explaining why, in his view, millennials weren't into cars. And I just finished reading them so wanting for information. Like, I just didn't feel like it was backed up. It wasn't my impression of what was happening, what I was seeing every single weekend when I was going to car shows or Mm -hmm. talking to people. It just seemed so off to me. And I think this idea that young people are super into their cell phones and don't want to get up off the couch, which are literally two things that he said, we just needed to get rid of it. We needed to, (laughs) I needed to flip that on its head because I absolutely knew it wasn't true. We were just going to different types of things and talking about different types of cars and creating our own events. And I think that has really come to light lately with the growth of things like Radwood or Grid Life is another one. It's more of a car festival and 
music and camping weekend that also has a racing component. These things are big now. They attract thousands of people and even more eyeballs on social media and internet traffic. And so the idea that interest in cars is just going to disappear one day, I think nothing could be further from the truth. I'm glad to hear that. And I would have to agree, even though I don't run in uh, younger circles. Well, that's, uh, that's what interests me. I would love to know what, from your perspective, what are you seeing? Are you noticing young people or... or no, you know, I, I do some informal little car gatherings and certainly there are always younger people there. So I would have to say that much apropos of Mark Twain's early prognostication of his demise, the car hobby is not in jeopardy either. Of course, I do have certain concerns about pre-war cars, unless they're the best of the best of the best. I have a feeling a lot of them are going to be ignored in the near term, at least. I don't see a place for anything with four doors made before the war that doesn't have a very, very steep price tag on it. I think most of those cars are going to be ignored. And other cars are being ignored, too, that used to be, you know, the hot items, 57 T-Bird or a 57 Bel Air. I mean, those are just don't have the cachet they used to, well, which I is think, a I shame. Think the pool of cars to collect has just grown exponentially. You know, since that time, there's a whole 30 or 40 years of cars that have right. since come out. Absolutely. That now we've got to add into the pool. And now we've got to have room right. for collectors to enjoy these, too. Plus, they're the ones that they grew up with. That's right. So that's what they're going to gravitate to first. And maybe they stick with car collecting and they evolve and they do go back looking farther through history to find that kind of stuff. But in the 80s and 90s, those 50s T-Birds were the things that they grew up with. They were the, they were the cats. And there just weren't yeah. as many cars out to that's collect. Right. And so now there's exponentially That's more. right. So it's just going to have to be a reality that we learn to live with. Like, there's just not going to be a lot of young people wanting T-Birds. That's and like, right. But they are going to want other things, and then eventually that'll go out of vogue. And, like, we just have to get used to this idea that car culture is always going to be an ever-changing thing. It's never going to be static. And just because people don't like the kind of car culture you like doesn't mean they're not into cars. Well, that's what makes cars kind of fascinating. I can take great pleasure, and I'm sure you can, in going to a, a car event that has nothing to do with any of the cars that I personally am attracted to. I mean, I've been fascinated by some of the lowrider creations. I mean, some of sure. these cars are absolutely amazing, or the whole rat rod culture and cars that wouldn't necessarily be in my metier, but I can certainly appreciate what it takes to create them. Sure. Really sure. amazing, amazing I think, things. I think we're starting to see that appreciation. People are becoming more understanding of different subsets of car culture. Can you imagine 10 years ago something like a Supra coming across a Barry Jackson block or a it, Gooding? It would have been, would have been unthinkable. Sotheby's or Gooding? Unthinkable, with the exception of a 240Z or a, or a Toyota you know, 2000. I mean, it would have been absolutely impossible yeah. to imagine these things having any collectible value at all. Yeah. But in fact, they've proven themselves to be not only collectible, but fairly interesting cars. Sure. You talk about one car in your book that kind of pulls a heartstring for me. Uh, you talk a lot about the BMW 30 M3 yeah. and the power and importance of that car. They made very few of them. I think about 18,000, as you noted. And uh, I came close to buying one in, uh, in 1990. Bought a Carrera 2 instead. But that's, that's one that got away. I've always loved that car quite yeah. a bit. What's your experience with it? What do you think it represents? I think it was really a huge touchstone car for younger enthusiasts and now collectors. But the BMW in particular... You look at what they did there, it's it's what we're doing now. It was taking a normal car, an E33 series, and just squeezing every ounce of performance that you could get out of it and really launched the M brand into a different stratosphere. It did. And 
that led to where we are now, where basically every single automaker has some... M equivalent. Some equivalent of M, whether it's Ford with ST Fiestas. Right, right. Or... Or SVT with JAG, obviously AMG, which was acquired by Mercedes-Benz to sort of trump everything that they made. Yeah, and really the forebearer of all that stuff was the E30 M3. And the way that it dominated racing for a long time was really unique and still remains unique. Like, you just don't have hero cars like that anymore. And it still looks good. Still looks good. It still looks just right, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and same thing. It is is very much <laughs> look at it and go, oh, that's an '80s car. <laughs> mm-hmm. You could know nothing about it and say, oh, I know pretty much exactly Those when that was made. <laughs> blister fenders, uh, all the styling cues that yeah. were absolutely high design back yeah. in the era, but. 15, 20 years ago, if you wanted to go racing on the cheap, you went and picked one of those up. Mm-hmm. And then you beat the hell out of it. That's right. Because they could take it, and because, what do I care anyway? It's just it's just an E30 M3. Its whole ethos is you hop into it and have a blast driving it. And it's not even necessarily that fast, even at the time. No, but, it wasn't at all. In fact, it was, a, you know, four-banger didn't really do that much. But again, back to your thesis, slow car fast. Well, it was hardly slow, but it wasn't the fastest. But it was maybe the funnest. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you know, now they're fire-breathing dragons, as you mentioned. The new uh, X5M is sub-three-second car. But M had a very interesting series of cars that came out of that division. And I had a 95 M3 that was a bucket of fun. But uh, they've gotten bigger over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the trends that we see in in automobiles. Of course, you're familiar with it at Edmunds every day. Man, they build them big these days. Mm -hmm. And maybe another part of your thesis could be small car fast. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm really the only one... The Miata is really an outlier because it hasn't gotten that much bigger. I mean, it does look a little bit bulkier compared to some of its predecessors, but really you line it up against the MB or NC Miata and it actually, the new one looks more sculpted and more windswept and less bulbousy, which is like kind of rare these days because a lot of, I mean, a lot of BMWs like just look heavy. They are heavy, monstrous. Um, But they have to fit these certain demands and rules set either by safety administrations or you have to have all this driver assistance equipment or software. There's just no getting around it. Like, this is just where we're at now. We're just not going to go backwards in terms of weight. I, I don't I don't see how that would happen because you just you have to fit crash standards you That's have right. to have and any weight savings you gain through different metallurgy or different composites you add right back in with additional safety systems yeah. and, and so forth which I guess in the scheme of things is good but it does get us further and further away from the original m3 and we're just gonna have to keep looking back to previous cars for that kind of stuff that's right I miss manual transitions as much as anybody <laughs> but I mean we're yeah, ju- we're tell gonna have me to what look, happened there just going to have to let this go. Because Explain it's just, that one, Ryan. They're never coming back, are it's they? It's just not going to happen. And so people who want that level of engagement, there's used cars out there. There's stuff out there. <laughs> go on, bring a trailer. There's no shortage of manual transmission. Don't you think cars. a manual makes you a better driver, a smarter sure. driver? It just, it makes you think more, yeah. think harder. It makes you think about what you're doing. Yeah, no question. And like you said, you get more out of it too. But the fact is they're just, <laughs> you're not going to find them in new cars. You're right. And these are just these these trends that just keep happening, and we're we're just going to have to keep adapting and changing and seeing seeing where it goes. But we just can't expect things to stay the same. That's what oh, nostalgia like, is for. Nostalgia like, is for going back and looking at the old stuff. You're right, and I love your positive attitude too. You really have a good perspective on this. You know, in terms of perspective, you talk about something that I'm not really deeply into at all. You talk about automotive social media and how that really affects perceptions and creates trends, and you know, makes some cars stars and other cars cars 
irrelevant. Yeah. What role has that played? Can you address that? Yeah, I think the role that social media has played as it's really come into its own power in the last 10 years is it's created room for people who like used to be in niche subsets to really find their own people and grow their cultures. And so whether it's Japanese cars or drifters or fans of the Lancia Delta Integrale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like you can just find, yeah. you can find each other. And, that's right. And share your passion not only with each other, but introduce them to other people. And so I think that's really where you get a lot, like these really rapid rises in prices of a car like that or mm -hmm. an E30 M3 or something like that. That's a very interesting point. People would not know the other exists. It's sort of like, how, how do these rare species of banded gecko find a mate when they're only, you know, <laughs> X Social number is the, the mating call. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, they, I guess they do it in nature, but it takes a lot longer than, yeah. uh, than meeting another car enthusiast. Yeah, but the way you did it before was by buying every car magazine off the shelf or off the rack or subscribing to every single one and then reading every single article. And the way you do it now is just picking up your phone and scrolling for 30 seconds. It's an amazing and you, thing. And you come across all kinds of stuff. And every day I learn something different about a racing program or a weird car or a car I've never seen before or never heard of. And there That's was some, the most fun, making yeah, these discoveries. Some weird thing from, I don't know, Yugoslavia or something. Yeah. But it just democratized the enthusiast experience so much because you didn't have to be an expert in any one area. You could appreciate a little bit of everything because we're getting fed so much stuff all the time. You get to discover people's passions. You don't have to listen to an accredited journalist all the time. Like You can go out and find the person that you do like. You can find personality or an influencer who is just really into something and learn why that is and why they really care about this car. And that's been a lot of fun. And it's one of the ways that you can tell young people are into cars because a lot of these people have huge, huge followings, hundreds of thousands of people, or they get millions of views on every YouTube video. That's right. And they're just they're just massive audiences. And so I think we can't ignore the watching power and buying power of young people in the car world anymore because they will show up. That's <laughs> they right. They will They'll... show up to your events. They will buy tickets. They will watch your videos. That's right. You just have to be passionate and put stuff out there that you care about and they will find it. And I want to thank a lot of those guys and gals who bothered to put together YouTube videos to show me how to replace a pollen filter on a 1995 XYZ because it's, <laughs> uh, you know, something that you ordinarily would not be able to learn otherwise. Yeah. So an amazing depth and breadth of information out there. Yeah. That's where the new generation of enthusiasts is going to come from because it's going to make things seem less intimidating and less scary because mm -hmm. you can go on there and learn how to diagnose a problem and then fix it. God, if you're my age, you remember the Haynes manuals and all those awful things things with the yeah. diagrams and the <laughs> convoluted instructions. And how'd that son of a bitch do this? These aren't yeah. right. It's impossible. So you yeah. had to be super dedicated back yeah. then, right? Yeah, and it sure created did. it created yeah. a certain type of car guy to bring up a term that I hope we can move away from in the future, but that's just not necessary anymore. You, you yeah. it can be open to everybody. Yeah. And yeah. I think we're we're seeing different kinds of people show up in car shows and, and meets and enter motorsports. The rise of women in motorsports has been really, really cool yeah, to it's, watch. It's uh, certainly a very ecumenical playing field now. Yeah. And there's room for everybody. And Hopefully we get to a point soon where we don't even have to bring it up and address it. And I don't have to say, oh, it's so cool to watch. Like, it just is what it, it, is, it is. You know what? That's exactly it. It's just somebody else with a car. Exactly. And I, that's kind of the way you want it to be. Exactly. I went to a Japanese classic car show in Long Beach later last year and uh 
there was a Mazda AutoZam AZ1. Remember those little things with oh, the going yeah. doors? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> my daughter's my daughter was five years old at the time, and she was like, "What is that?" Like I was having to drag her around to try to make her be interested in the cars we were seeing, and she saw that and said. What is that? So we walk up to it, and this young woman named Delaney comes around, and she goes, "Do you want to get inside?" To my daughter, and she was, her eyes just got so huge, and it was her car, and she's 24, and is Amazing. Not, was not previously like really a car person, and found that car one day, or actually saw it online, and just got so into that wormhole, like I have to have this thing, I have to become like enthusiast of this thing, brings it to car shows all the time. Isn't that great? And yeah, by far the like most hospitable person to my daughter at that whole show, and just like made her day so isn't that it was, great well that's the, that's the kind of stories that like we need we need that stuff that's right we do I, a lot of enthusiasts are always talking about how take a kid to a car show or whatever and it's so important to kind of get a whole new generation of enthusiasts yeah. from the ground up yeah and the best way to do that is take them for a ride or at least let them get in and start the engine and poke around and poke around yeah yeah but you have to let them find their thing like you you, you can't just take them to the same kind of show over and over again and say, well, oh, she's not getting it. Like, right. Why no. doesn't she like Chord 812s? Yeah. I just don't get it, you know? <laughs> her, her thing is out there. And like, that's yeah. what I've learned. Like, it's never the thing that I want her to see, but right. it's always, she always finds something. And that's, that's super cool. I think most people have that experience. It's like kids with musical instruments. They sit you down at the piano or throw a violin in your crib. You're going to hate the thing from the, <laughs> you know, for, for the rest of your life. But if you discover a clarinet in a closet or something, it might be a different story together. Yeah. yeah. I tell my friends to talk to my daughter about things that they think are cool because if I tell her it's cool, she's not, not cool, interested. Not cool. Dad thinks it's cool. That's lame. If cool Uncle Andrew shows her a cool movie or something, oh, oh, well, he, he thinks it's great, so I need to go watch that. Well, you're probably a pretty cool dad. You certainly know about cars, and I'm always intrigued, though, or like to ask anybody on the show about their own personal favorites. And uh, if the genie came out of the bottle, you could have three cars. What do you think you'd take? The car for me is the Ferrari 550 Maranello. That's the prettiest car ever made to me. The big Italian Camaro. Boy, it was a beautiful yeah, car. Yeah, so I grew up with Mustangs, car. so it's... There you go. It's the right way to do it. Big engine in the front, yeah. rear-wheel drive, yeah. Yeah. gorgeous, you know, coupe silhouette. That's the way to do it for me. I, I love all cars that just have like that muscle car, pony car. That's absolutely style. right. And that one to me is you know the, it the, you're right. It in the five seventy five maybe the last analog Ferraris too. Yeah. I mean yeah. that's it. After that, it kind of turned into something else, huh? Yeah. God, what a great car. So that's that's the one for me. As Fantastic. Far as two others. I don't know. There's. Two come on, others, I could come name on, pick two others. 25 others. I've, well, the, the, the name a few. The first-gen Viper GTSs were <laughs> just like so cartoonish they and were. silly they and brutal. They couldn't even figure out how to put a top on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so they said, screw it. Let's yeah. just not put a top yeah. on it. Yeah, I know. I love so it. So great. I love it. So great. That's silly stuff like that. And I really like, you know what I think is going to be a lot of fun to look back on this era it's gotten kind of out of control, but these four-door sedans that are that they're calling coupes that like have yes. this teardrop shape. Sure. So whether it's the BMW has the Grand Coupes mm-hmm. and Audi has the, the A7, right? And they've got like that. their uh, little RS5 Sportback. I yeah. had one of those recently, and it was a brilliant little yeah. car. I think they're I think they're really cool. But the first one, uh, first was the Mercedes CLS. CLS. 
I saw one in Germany with the, the pointy first... with the pointy little back oh, end. Oh man, alive. and then they started to get they started to get more conventional after that. But that first one, the first one was incredible. I yeah. chased one down in Berlin before they came to America. I was driving around with a girlfriend at the time, and she says, "Robert, slow down! What are you doing? What are you doing?" I said, "I have to catch that car." <laughs> it was the most amazing thing I'd seen. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that shape defined a generation of cars ever since. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm really curious to see what's next. There's always going to be something that surprises us. And then they moved that ethos onto SUVs and now we have these four-door SUV coupes. Yes, we, yes like, we do. Look like great big toads kind of hooked up in the air. And, a collection of words that don't make any sense. Yeah, but, and who'd have thought they could be so fast and powerful. Yeah, man. So yeah. there's always going to be stuff that surprises us and I'm excited to find out what the next thing is. Well, Ryan, I was excited to read your book. I heartily recommend it to anyone listening. Slow Car Fast, The Millennial Mantra, Changing Car Culture for Good, published by Carrera Books. Really a brilliant job. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Thanks to Ryan Zamalin for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, studio recording and editing by A.J. Mosley, recorded at Kurt Coe's Malibu Podcast Studios, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Tune into Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Coe Media. Media for your mind.